Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Were you a fan of the space program? I was, yes. We all watched it in England and marveled at it. Marvel, were you up late at night watching the moon landing? No, where were you? You would have been an old no, star. I, you were in Hong Kong, or uh, where were you? What year was the moon landing? 1969. Yeah, no, I was in July. England. Yeah. You were in England. Right, yeah. So uh, were you up late in the middle of the night to watch the I landing? I quite honestly don't remember. What did you think of what the, uh, the astronauts wore? About their wardrobe? Yeah. yeah, their wardrobe. Oh, I think we were all fascinated by spacesuits and what they might mean, and the whole of the thing going on with it, you know, that... You know, especially if there was a, a little knife somewhere that slit into them, everybody died immediately. I mean, that's what was what was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, so there was sort of a feeling of danger that, oh my yeah, God, oh, they yeah. could. Yeah, well, it was. They it could was catch dangerous. it on the ladder. Oops. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it happened to some Russians actually. You know, oh, it did. Uh, they were leaving. They were leaving a, a, a space station and. Uh, heading back and a valve was left open and and of course at that time uh, what was fascinating to learn in this book was that the the Russian cosmonauts uh, did not have any control over their capsules the Americans you know wanted to be pilots and, and uh. have manual control but they were controlled the uh, the uh, Russian ones were comp- uh, controlled by radio signals from the uh. ground and what was it the first spaceship that went up there was an envelope with codes in it that you had to punch in if you really wanted to take over the little Russian capsule. Wow. Different kind of ethos. Mm-hmm. Ethosy? Yeah, no. Ethos Eth- is good. Ethos yeah. is no, good. <laughs> anyway, there's this and uh, much more is in this uh, fascinating book published by the MIT Press. It's called Spacesuit Fashioning Apollo. And the author is a, an architect and assistant uh, professor of architecture at the College of Environmental Design here at uh, UC Berkeley. Please welcome Nicholas Dumont Show to West Coast Live. How'd you do? What an amazing. <laughs> well, those spacesuits in 2001, A Space Odyssey, they represented a whole different way of viewing the world. Well, yes and no. I mean, those spacesuits were actually designed by a guy named Harry Lang, who was a production designer for Stanley Kubrick. But one of the most interesting interviews I did for the book was with a guy named Frederick Ordway, who had been in his lifetime both assistant to Werner von Braun at the Marshall Space Flight Center and then subsequently assistant to Kubrick on the uh, on 2001. And what Kubrick took advantage of with that film is that with the, uh, in, in 1966, the space program took a nickel out of every tax dollar, hugely funded in this big drive to beat the Russians and produce this amazing image of an American on the surface of the moon. But then shortly after that, uh, the funding declined precipitously and all, uh, all these NASA people were laid off. And some of them got work actually um, in amazing places like urban government that I write about. And then a lot of them were hired by Kubrick to produce the designs for the, the, um, uh, the movie, that, uh, 2001, that he was working on uh, at the time. So that there, there's actually a, a very direct lineage from the, from the space program to 2001 as a kind of vision of the space program as it might be. Were you a, a kid who loved the space program? Um, of course. <laughs> uh, I, I was not, I actually was born um, uh, about a year after the last Apollo mission, so it's not something I ever got to experience uh, myself, but as a, 
as a young man, I was um, um, uh, fascinated by space. I wanted to study astronomy. And uh, I, I think the, uh, uh, during the course of uh, writing the book, I got to spend a year as a research fellow at the Smithsonian Institution at the Air and Space Museum. And that was the most decidedly the only job I've had in my life that my eight-year-old self was thoroughly on board with. Um, <laughs> I, and there in the, in the museum, was it, you saw not only the spacesuit that's on display, but many that are kept in a closet? Well, so to speak, yeah. the the Smithsonian has this incredible that the Smithsonian is the nation's attic, but it turns out that the attic has an attic as well, and um, that the there's a whole uh, complex of warehouses in I kid you not, Suitland, Maryland, where um, the spacesuits themselves are are stored, and they're stored there on their backs. It looks like um, a kind of uh, a funeral bier from a from a Spanish chapel from the 16th century or something, these incredible relics all lying on their back, um, uh, kind of with hands crossed on their stomach. And, and uh, uh, the, uh, I, I can say that the, you know, some of the most uh, amazing moments I had were, you know, it was just a, a warehouse and you had to sign in and sign out and sign forms. And, and then you would um, uh, come across these suits and you'd realize that they were they were, um, what most astonished me about them was that they were incredibly dirty. And I was like, oh, who, who hasn't been taking good care of these suits? And then um, I suddenly came to the realization that they were still covered in moon dust. And you had this uh, kind of incredible sense of vertigo, not only sitting there looking at the moon dust, but then when I took the kind of uh, uh, humdrum, you know, um, Smithsonian shuttle uh, uh, into the center of Washington from the suburbs, sometimes the moon would be rising in the evening and I would have this sense of vertigo that these objects that I'd spent all day that, that were, um, um, you know, in human form, that the incredibly, anthrop literally anthropomorphic had, had been on the surface of the moon and it was, um, it, it brought an element of poetry to the bus ride that was not otherwise present. Yeah. <laughs> Could you touch these suits? Um, well, with wearing gloves. Uh, they're, they're very... Um, well, actually, what's really interesting about them is that when they were brought back to Earth uh, uh, during the Apollo program, NASA treated them in a very cavalier fashion. They actually sent them all to the dry cleaner because they just they didn't think that they were looked snappy enough to be put on display in these sort of roving I exhibits that happened after Apollo. And then over time, as our attitude towards the Apollo program shifted, they suddenly became these most precious of relics because, you know, let's face it, a kind of hunk of electronics doesn't have quite the same power as this uh, uh, object in the shape of a person. And, and um, it's actually my theory that, that we, we feel a special desire to protect the suits because uh, while I was writing this book, I became a parent and I realized that the, the spacesuit, uh, as it was worn on the surface of the moon, has these incredible proportions. It has this giant head uh, because of the helmet, and then it has these sort of uh, stubby, plump arms and legs uh, because of all the layers of clothing. And it actually transforms these uh, incredibly macho astronauts into, into sort of celestial babies. Uh, <laughs> Maybe also recalling uh, 2001, but it's uh, uh, you feel this sense of, uh, of real um, uh, kind of uh, an urge to protect them and take care of them. And, um, you know, the astronauts still, I, I, uh, I got to meet um, uh, m many of the Apollo astronauts in the course of working on this book, not because they would necessarily want to meet with me. These guys are still uh, deluged with, you know, everybody wants a piece of them still. They're these incredible um, uh, kind of durable celebrities. But, uh, but actually, I got to meet them all because I was there sort of 
looking at the suits and trying to figure out how, um, how they were made with the incredible curatorial staff of the Smithsonian. And the, the astronauts, the Apollo astronauts would arrive uh, because what it turns out when they come to Washington, they don't actually go to this giant cathedral on the, on the National Mall with all the hardware. And you know they don't want to see the car that they rode in, metaphorically speaking, but they, they want to see the suit because they regard it really as part of themselves. It was just them in the suit and a quarter million miles of space between, you know, vacuum between between them and the surface of the earth and they the the suit they want to make sure is is taken good care of there's something about in the way you describe the suit that you know it is the environment that was the interface the protection from space and the idea of space came from another century the word the usage of it well, it was actually Milton who came up with the idea of space. And he, uh, in, in Paradise Lost, he uses the capitalized space versus the kind of architectural space that we're used to as the celestial realm that's only inhabited by kind of angels and demons. And it still has this incredible uh, quality of, of, uh, uh, of literally it is defined as the environment that humans can't occupy. And in our present day, it's gone from being the uh, just the space inhabited by angels to the space that we need technology in order to occupy. Actually, if you look across many different disciplines from rocket science to medicine, they all define space very differently. They have different altitudes and different chemical definitions of what uh, outer space is. But they, the one thing that's common to all the definitions is that it is the environment that we need technology to occupy. Uh, and therefore, in our, in our present day, it has this interesting um, kind of dual meaning that it, it's both, it's still the space of angels. We still look upon astronauts and their exploits, you know, uh, uh, somehow, somehow we are, you know, fascinated by people eating food in space and people doing all these things in space because they have this incredible poetic quality for, for being done there. And then it is also this kind of inky backdrop on which we project our own desires and uh, uh, feelings about the technology that allows us to, to, uh, uh, to occupy this heavenly, heavenly realm. There's also uh, the idea that sometimes you need your own space. And in fact, there was an incident where astronauts kind of rebelled against the controllers and turned off the electronics and technology to give themselves a little space, a little privacy. Yes, a Harvard Business School study of the incident called it the strike in space. Uh, and you know, one one of the things that I that I write about in the book is that the the almost the entirety of the American space program was repurposed from the military military industrial enterprise of launching nuclear rockets to other parts of the planet and obliterating them, which is not a very humane kind of thing to uh, environment. And the the process of systems engineering that was invented for for um, uh, the defense establishment was really translated in whole cloth to the, to the to the space race. But there was one thing which really didn't fit into this larger military industrial enterprise, which was the human body, which is how, in the securitous way, the women from the Playtex bra and girdle assembly line ended up making the spacesuit instead of Raytheon or a military industrial contractor, not, uh, uh, not because anyone wanted them or thought that they should, but rather because it turned out that the military industrial um, enterprise really uh, uh, failed and failed repeatedly when it came to designing for the human body. But in this larger institutional sense, the, the astronauts were really uh, kind of uncomfortable guests in this military industrial space. And the, the space suit was a, was a buffer, I argue, in the book, not just between 
the vacuum of outer space and the and the kind of intimate environment of the human body, but between the the institutional context of the military-industrial defense establishment and the the very different logic of the body. And this this came to a head many times in the Apollo program, but then also um, very much in Skylab when uh, literally the astronauts were scheduled every five-minute block of time throughout the day. They had a different thing to do, and and this was very uh, this was the longest that any American had in space. And, and several weeks into the last longest Skylab mission, everything came to a head. And there's some dispute now about the precise course of events. It was reported one way at the time, and later it was reported um, much more that everything was really fine, nobody was really that upset, but I'm convinced that the astronauts really got pissed off and they just shut everything down. And uh, it turns out they spent all the time doing what they'd been dying to do for the entire time, which was not look out at space, but look down at the Earth. So when you talk about the way the military-industrial systems couldn't deal with the human body, uh, one of the ways also that you describe is sort of the way our structures, the system engineering and the giant corporate organizations that were required with it for an enterprise of this size uh, had to get along with the spacesuit manufacturers, which would, became a division of the Playtex Braun Girdle Company called International Latex. And this was a group of women making things by hand, sewing things. NASA was an organization that wanted reams of paperwork on the history of every screw, every pin. And the Latex Corporation didn't know how initially to do the paperwork. So part of the way that they initially uh, had their own spacesuit was working with another corporation. Yes, they, they hired um, the, the Ling Temco Vought Corporation, which was a, a, a very well-established defense contractor at the time, to literally act, act as their own spacesuit in NASA's system to kind of act, uh, help them sort out all the paperwork and act as a buffer between them and the outside organization. And one of the funniest stories to come out of that was that the NASA, every time anything changed in a, in a systems engineering context, there had to be new serial numbers, new papers, everything, any little distinction, very, very crucially in this engineering process, had to be documented, but when you were sizing things for the human body, this didn't quite work. Every time you had to kind of let out a seam, you would have had to assign a new serial number. So um, uh, uh, ILC, who is the, the, the subsidiary of this larger international latex corporation making the suit, um, uh, successfully fought for each element of the suit uh, to be sized not with a serial number but with a small, medium, or large, except for, it turns out, the urinary collection device, which was sized large, extra large, extra, extra large. <laughs> the story of these... Uh, and did you know which astronaut had which suit? I mean, I don't know. Well, apparently this sizing was introduced after a quote-unquote incident with the first astronaut fitted. <laughs> when the, uh, when these, these suits were uh, delivered to NASA, uh, what, did they, were they delivered in a, in a box, on a coat hanger, inside a bag? Uh, you know, what, uh, how were they? They were delivered in a kind of large road case, as if they were a kind of amplifier or something, and they were all folded up on themselves, and they had the um, about 600 pages of documentation uh, that were delivered with them, which um, it turns out was, was much more uh, uh, real to NASA than the actual suit itself involved. And, and the, but the suits were still this very much handmade uh, artifact that had seams that could rip and, and problems. And, and I spoke to the, the, the most amazing interviews I did were uh, 
um, it turns out not even with the with the astronauts who had gone into the space into space, but with these seamstresses who had this incredible sense of craft, sewing to a sixty fourth of an inch tolerance. And uh, uh, one of them I remember was uh, assigned to bring a new glove to Cape Canaveral when there'd been a problem with the glove and need to be replaced just before the mission. She was put into the back seat of a fighter jet with the glove in a case, handcuffed to her. Uh, handcuffed to her wrist and you know because the entire success of the mission was depending upon its delivery and it had turned out she was from rural Del- Delaware she'd never been even been in a plane before <laughs> and and so the the kind of story of these uh, these individuals you know who'd been this was a woman transferred from making you know uh, brassieres and cross your heart bras and suddenly she found herself you know in a handcuffed to a to a uh, suitcase in a I mean out of like something out of a James Bond movie I mean it, when, when in this story did you go in, in sort of the sex person, you go, oh my God, this is really an amazing thing. These are incredible stories. I mean, did it dawn on you early on that you were on the path of, of, uh, of this great, you know, history? Well, it, I, I thought the one of the things about the history is because there are lots of different companies, even the company itself goes from being a unit of ILC, which was known by its brand name, Playtex, to a spin-off, to it's a very complicated story. And so when I first looked into it, it was for a paper in graduate school, and I said, oh, I'll just I'll just read what someone's written about this and kind of processes and think about what it means for, for architecture, which is, of course, my discipline, and I couldn't find any materials. And then I sort of kept pulling on the thread, and the project kind of took on its own momentum but the the it's a kind of it's a deeply interesting story and it's a deeply complicated one and so part of the task which is why the book has this structure of the 21 different layers just like the suit is that the the suit was a very complicated very adapted kind of uh, 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 enterprise and the story had to be as well so the, the, the this question that you pointed out of making uh, uh, making the structure of the storytelling match the the complex structure of the object was what really took me the most time to figure out in the process of writing. How was the color of the suit chosen? Was there a color, a design of it, the placement of the emblems on it? Well, that, that's a, a very interesting story as well because, the, of course, the the first spacesuits for the Mercury um, uh, missions were silver, and this was uh, had uh, it turns out no functional uh, property whatsoever. But the, they were actually military green. But the, the the contractor, in order to to make sure that they looked the part, had decided that silver was the most effective color, and they they put out some kind of PR thing about how it protected against radiation and reflected heat and various things. But it, uh, and then during the Gemini mission, when the the um, uh, the astronauts made their first uh, extra spacewalks, extravehicular activities, it turned out having a silver suit was terrible. It was because the against the unprotected rays of the sun, it was like wearing a suit of mirrors. It was this kind of dazzling, uh, um, uh, t- and so then that's when the suits became white. And then back on Earth, uh, I, I looked through all the advertising at the time. It turned out precisely when the suits became white, all of Buck Rogers' outfits were retooled from being silver to being white because that suddenly became the the uh, the kind of um, uh, de rigueur color for spacemen and the 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 really the kind of back and forth between science fiction and science fact going back even to your first question about 2001 was one of the things that most surprised me in the writing of the book it's not it's not quite the sort of separate serious story of science fact and the kind of fantastic science fiction at the time everyone was thinking what should a space look like well of course it should be silver you know the, the, there was a real um, a sense that this was they were stepping into science fiction for the very first time the role of image uh, critical in the in the space program and one of the stories you tell is of uh, John F Kennedy president highly conscious of his image um, 
highly aware that his health was fragile, but he had to look healthy and robust uh, for the world. He himself wore a corset. Yeah, he wore a kind of corset back brace in order to partially to relieve the the terrible back pain that he had and partially also to kind of maintain this upright posture. He, um, John F. Kennedy's relationship to clothing was really interesting. He would change his clothes from the skin out um, up to five times a day. He would change his shirt up to seven times a day. He was deeply sick. He had Addison's disease, back problems, all these things which he managed uh, just like Roosevelt to keep from the keep from the public. And he knew that uh, uh, that kind of having this crisp suit his own kind of spacesuit really helped him in the in the um, uh, in this creation of imagery and it was his understanding of image and the effect it could have in a in the kind of media culture of mid-century that led him after Gagarin was launched and the Soviet Union had this huge victory to create this multi-billion dollar enterprise that in its end was really dedicated to the production production of a single television image which was of an American on the moon and this was a, a, a not just a, a question of exploration it was really a question of Cold War um, uh, of Cold War image making and of, of warfare, but by other means. Yet the Russian space soldiers, if you will, didn't have such suits all the time. I mean, wasn't didn't some of them just go up in kind of these wool tunics? Well, the 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 Russian um, uh, the Russians, in an attempt to compete against the uh, Americans after the Gemini program, took the same capsule that Gagarin had been launched in, and for one person, for one person, and decided that they could squeeze three people in by taking out all the equipment. Um, putting three people in, not wearing um, spacesuits, and actually uh, taking out even the the sort of explosive bolts of the hatch and just welding it shut into a steel ball and lobbing them into orbit. And these were the first Soviet, Soviet astronauts who actually landed in their spacecraft because the Soviets kept secret until the 1980s the fact that Gagarin and these single astronauts had, uh, because the the rocket um, brakes that that were supposed to slow down this capsule to land on the steps. Of Kazakhstan, these weren't um, deemed to be safe or effective, and so Gagarin and his compatriots actually ejected in the stratosphere, clad only in a spacesuit, and then landed on the ground. And that's why the Russian spacesuits had this very prominent CCCP on the on the forehead, because they realized Gagarin was launched right after Francis Gary Power had been shot down uh, in a U-2 spy plane, and right as they were packing him into the capsule, they said, oh my goodness, he's not going to land in the capsule. He's just going to be in a spacesuit on the ground. Everyone's going to think that he's an American and kill him. And so they, they literally took out a paintbrush and just painted, you know, Soviet Union basically on the, on the forehead of his uh, uh, helmet so that he wouldn't be mistaken. Part of the panel who suggested to John Kennedy that, that uh, the space program take people to the moon uh, was Frank Stanton, president of CBS. And you make an interesting linkage between the role of CBS and its coverage of the, the Apollo, the, the entire space program, and the sort of government, military, government collaboration. Well, one of the things that happens to you when you write a book about men landing on the moon is that everyone decides to inform you that it didn't actually happen. Uh, you've, you've had people say that to you. Uh, um, uh, more than once. And uh, the, uh, But I was determined, actually, to run down where this story came from. And one of the things that came from was that CBS, um, uh, which was, of course, the largest American news broadcaster of the time, uh, uh, decided that NASA's picture feeds were terrible, and they would do their own. But they employed all the same 
time simulating technologies that NASA had used to train astronauts. And, and it was a, uh, a, a producer for CBS who came up with a screenplay for a faked Mars shot um, that Warner Brothers sat on until Watergate when they finally figured that they could produce something, they, they could establish that the American people might not totally trust their, their government. And that became the classic movie Capricorn One with Telly Savalas, Sam Waterston, and O.J. Simpson playing. <laughs> Well, and speaking of the Smithsonian and the uh, attic of the U.S., I was I was just there uh, in in December and came across in one of the corridors the actual filing cabinet of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist that had been busted into, and it was really damaged with a crowbar. <laughs> it was crazy time. It yeah. was really a crazy time, and and uh, of course the the. Uh, uh, Nixon uh, didn't uh, play a role in in um, uh, in the actual landing on in deciding to land on the moon, but he was sure to take his part on uh, in the broadcast of the 1969 broadcast, and he insisted to to CBS that they put a, a split screen on an early, an early split-screening technology where you had the astronauts on the moon on the left and Nixon's smiling face on the right, congratulating them. <laughs> Well, of course, why not? I mean, that was. I mean, this was. Uh, this was about power. One of the other interesting statements that you, you've made is that not only in Eisenhower's last speech was uh, "Beware of the military-industrial complex," an idea that he'd been troubled by for for several years before he said it, but also that a government contract is not the same as discovery, as curiosity, as intellectual curiosity. No, sub no substitute for for creativity. Uh, and so one of the things that you see um, in the in the space program is that you have these pockets of ingenuity and innovation, and especially in Apollo with this real sense of urgency, uh, uh, it was an enormously creative time. But then one of the problems that we've had, of course, with our space program since then, since we've everything was uh, 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 revised for the shuttle program and so forth, is that the space program has gotten bigger and more expensive, but it hasn't gotten more creative. Uh, and it's actually, uh, in some sense, has believed its own um, uh, numbers and systems a little bit too much. I, I think it was Richard Feynman who said after the, the first shuttle disaster that um, for a technology to be successful, nature, um, uh, reality must take uh, precedence over public relations for nature cannot be fooled. Has writing this book changed your life in some way? Absolutely. Uh, over the course of writing um, uh, this book, I met my wife. I became a parent. It, it has been kind of the, the a sort of decade-long companion on a, on a real um, uh, journey. And then the, the understanding and, and uh, kind of both skepticism and excitement about technology and our relationship to technology that, I, that I've, I've gotten over the course of writing this book has really shaped my own uh, practice as an architect. It's shaped uh, how I think about the world and how I look at... Um, how I look at what our, our future possibilities are. Can you describe, can you define, uh, I don't know, maybe this is a party trick, the 21 layers of the suit? Well, what, what was most interesting for me to discover is that the 21 layers of the suit, which everything from latex to Dacron to Nomex, none of them were actually invented from whole cloth, as it were, for the, for the space program. All of them were, were uh, adapted and introduced and layered together to form this composite. And a, a biologist friend of mine, uh, Stu Kaufman, coined a phrase called adjacent possibility, which is to say that when things are used and, and translated from different contexts to new contexts to adapt, it's, a, it's actually a, a, a really precious form of creativity, whereas the, the unsuccessful proposals for the spacesuit in the 60s, they all tried to invent something from, from scratch to, to kind of work out from first principles how a spacesuit should be, whereas ILC, um, uh, known by this brand of Playtex, were really 
uh, successful not in creating something um, from scratch, but rather in a, a, a particular unique kind of adaptation, which has a lot to do with how nature thinks about design and not so much, um, maybe it should have more to do with how the rest of us think about designing things in the world. One of their uh, tests, their, their applications, instead of a PowerPoint presentation, they did a little film of, uh, of, an, of a person in the suit playing football to show how flexible it was and how you could actually work with it. Well, there is, this, of course, this incredible subtext of masculinity and femininity in in ILC's uh, attempts to t be taken seriously in the kind of macho culture of NASA. And so when it came time that, that NASA was considering alternative suits for the last series of Apollo missions, uh, uh, ILC made a, a new, newly, even more flexible form of its own suit, and uh, they, they weren't sure that NASA would trust the numbers, so they sent their own 16-millimeter uh, film of a suited technician playing football on the uh, Dover High School, Delaware High School football field in order to throwing passes and punting to, to show how flexible this new suit was. You have the most amazing pictures. I've, I've been fascinated in space for, for, for ever since I was a boy, and, and I've seen pictures in here that I haven't seen anywhere else. You must have had a fantastic access to archives. Did you did you also have a chance to talk with any of the women who sewed these suits? Oh, I, I interviewed very many of them. Um, uh, thanks to to um, the the company ILC uh, Dover, as it's now called, um, that that uh, there was the spacesuit unit that was spun out. Um, their company historian Bill Airy gave me incredible access to a whole um, uh, range of, of women who still work there or in the area, and actually still sewing spacesuits to this very day. It's a very specialized skill. Spacesuit fashioning Apollo, both fashion and making. By Nicholas de Monchot, MIT Press. Thank you very much for being here with you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.